my friends. Welcome back to another episode of the New Wave Podcast. Daniel DiPiazza checking in with you here. Did you know it's episode 99 today on this beautiful Friday morning? And that means tomorrow is episode 100. Now, I haven't really, you know, I, I should, should have probably done like some sort of special plan for episode 100 where we did some sort of celebration. I'm going to talk with my team and see if maybe we want to do a recap of the first 100 episodes or maybe um, something special, some sort of giveaway. But I just want to acknowledge you for being here for 100 episodes. I put up a, a, a poll on our New Wave Instagram, which is at New Wave Podcast IG, and I put up a poll a couple of days ago, and I was like, hey, how many people have watched one episode, L- watched or listened to one episode of the show? And about 80% of people said they've watched or listened to at least one, and I put up a, another poll. I said, okay, how many people have listened to or watched at least five? And then we had about 60% of people say they listened to at least five, and I'm sure there's even more people who have listened to more than that, and I thought, you guys are crazy. Why would you listen to so many of these episodes with my voice over and over and over again? And I was talking to Prince, who's producing this uh, in the other room, and I was like, you know, there's a reason why I quit doing these shows for almost two or three years. And I just thought, who wants to keep hearing this crap? But it's not crap. And this is something I was talking about, too, uh, on these on these power packs, these motivational power packs, which I'll tell you about in a minute. Everyone has their own gift. Everyone has their own unique talent that they take for granted. And I think that me creating content oftentimes is something I'm good at, but then I just I kind of take it for granted. And when I get back in the zone, back in the pocket, I feel so at ease that I almost don't feel like I'm doing any work. And then I think, oh, well, shouldn't it be something that's harder? Shouldn't I have to struggle more? But maybe I should be moving towards the things that feel better and that actually align with where my energy is naturally flowing out of. When we come in here and I'm doing some of these podcasts or we're recording things, I can just go and go and go. And I think it's because I'm really comfortable. And oftentimes with our daily work, I feel like we often grind on things that aren't comfortable because we feel like work has to be painful and our only release from the work would be at home when we're not working anymore. But I feel that there's a way where you can align your work in your life so that it's pretty much the same thing and you're really enjoying what you're doing at both ends of the spectrum, whether it's creating money through work, 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 or just having fun. They're kind of merged together and you feel energized by both. That's kind of how I feel when I record stuff. That's kind of how I feel when I'm doing these podcasts for you. And so thank you for listening. Like I said, 100 episodes um, so far coming tomorrow. And we did, we took us four years to create our first 100 episodes of my first show when I did this from 2015 to 19. And now it's been 100 episodes in five months on this show. So really, I'm just proud of the team. Um, I am proud of myself for sticking to my word. And I'm in a definitely a season where I'm building a lot of credibility with myself. I built it in the past. And then there's even been times where I felt like I'm not living up to my expectations of myself. And now I feel like I'm building that credibility. And I hope that you can take this, this just transparency about my own imposter syndrome and my own uh, just going through the journey and see yourself in it and use it for your own benefit. And that's kind of what I want to talk to you about today. We're going to jump into this episode. I have a bunch of really cool Friday uh, notes for you, but I wanted to just let, make sure that you know that one, uh, we're dropping Power Pack soon, which is an audio series designed to dramatically change your business and your life. And it's me asking you the questions that are going to allow you to start that creative engine and get all the answers you need from your brain. Because guess what? There's not much I can tell you that's going to give you the wisdom you need. You have to build that inside yourself. And you can go to newwaveentrepreneur.com to download that for free. You can also check it out here on Spotify. It should be up in just a few days if you're listening to this uh, on Friday when it came out. And if you're listening to that afterward, then it'll probably be already out. So go to newwaveentrepreneur.com, download that for free. Uh, There's some bonuses in there for free for you as well. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And uh, we might even play some of that for you later in the show. So that's that. Make sure you're subscribing to uh, the, the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and leave a comment, leave a review. It really helps. Helps us to raise the credibility of the show. Uh, much love. Let's jump into this Friday recap. 
All right. Well, I think this is going to be the last time I talk about this for the foreseeable Friday future. Uh, but as you guys might have noticed or heard, Elon Musk went through with his plan to buy Twitter in its entirety. And this was just approved by the Twitter board. Um, and I believe it was for a price of just over $44 billion. Now, there's lots to unpack with this. The first thing is we were just having this conversation for the past week about whether or not you believe that people who have these access to these types of resources like Elon Musk or Bezos, these people who pretty much can move anything man-made and they're trying to now move Earth and the stars, we're wondering, should they have complete control and autonomy of these things which have become public public utilities? So it's almost like, you know, and, and honestly, if one of these mega billionaires could, they probably would try to buy the internet. No one can buy the internet because it is naturally distributed. It's, it's the mere concept of it or the, the sheer concept of it is, is distribution in a way. Everyone has access to it. No one can really own it. It's actually quite decentralized, even though there are centralized elements of it. The web itself is hard to hard to productize, but there are pieces of the web like Twitter and Facebook and things like that, which are huge portals of internet access and which which provide a lot of the news and information for, uh, for, for millions and billions of people. And so we've been having this conversation about whether Elon would be a, you know, a good steward of this platform. The first thing we know is that he's going to take the company private again, or at least that's what he said. And this is going to have some sort of effect on the policies that, that are created, partially because um, I think that it's going to allow Elon to have more say on how the platform itself is run. I, I believe that he is a proponent of free speech. And as we've discussed in the past couple episodes, free speech is definitely what you want to hear people are, are behind, but then you want to see how they apply that free speech in practice. Everyone's free speech um, is, well, it's individual. It doesn't mean that the person who is who is allowing for free speech only allows the things that are pleasant for them to hear. So I'd be curious to see um, how this transfer in ownership or this, this uh, not really hostile takeover, this cooperative takeover uh, takes effect. One of the things I think that I tend to see in a lot of just power play situations, especially if you look at politics, and this is a slightly different situation, but there are some political elements here. A lot of times these, these figureheads will make a lot of promises in the beginning and either not be able to follow through because of just, you know, interdepartmental politics stuff or because they genuinely never intended to to follow through with them. I think that um, I think that Elon will probably be good for Twitter in the short term. But in the long term, it's yet to be seen. And I think one of the positives of this situation is that it is giving a voice to someone who is not left or right polarizing. I believe that most people, well, I don't know if I don't know what most people think. But a lot of people that I've seen from both sides of the political spectrum are fans of Elon, both for his business acumen, his wit, and his general approach to kind of snubbing politics. Um, I hope that he doesn't try to make any for, sort of formal transition into politics, which I don't think he will. But I do think that he will probably start to buy other larger media properties or different types of media assets. I think Twitter is just the start of a new series of plays. I don't think that is his final destination here. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he looked to buy another media outlet, you know, some sort of something that makes entertainment like a, like an HBO or a, you know, some sort of like cable 
uh, entertainment area or some sort of like even, uh, you know, even a news outlet and ABC, well, ABC is Disney now, but like a CNN or something like that. And uh, I think that that would be very much within his wheelhouse. Not only does he have the resources to do it, but I think he has the intention actively to do it because he sees that um, his peers in this space are taking active, an active approach to uh, create media empires as well as uh, transportation and logistics empires. So with Elon, for instance, he now has Tesla and SpaceX and SolarCity and Boring Company. And those are all like um, tech, techno, technological and transportation companies. And um, Bezos has a similar, has a kind of, kind of his version of that isn't really uh, like residential or not residential, but uh, but it's not necessarily like like consumer transportation. It's more like uh, like business transportation, mostly in the logistical aspect um, through his logistical uh, services with Amazon. So obviously he's he's shipping to consumers, but it's but he's also using a lot of like business freight and things like that. But he's he's man effectively drawn a web over the entire world with his logistics and his freight and his Amazon planes and, and drones and and vans. And Elon is doing the same thing, carving it up with his. Uh, his Tesla charging stations, and if he ever gets boring off the ground or under the ground, rather, his network of trains and um, SpaceX obviously is competing with um, with with Bezos's. I don't know, was he called Blue Dot or one of those? You know, one of those uh, those different space companies. So they're 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 clearly like mirroring each other, and you know, I don't think I don't think anyone's going to win. I think that the result will be that. The population, humanity, everyone who's not Bezos and Musk will have will be affected in some way. And I'm not sure there's anyone who's going to win that situation. One one of the things um, I, I will read this too from from the from the blog. Someone left a comment about my comments on Musk, and I wanted to give a response. So let's see here. I'll just go. Okay, so this is a so first of all, a few corrections basically on some comments I made recently just on the Elon Musk situation and everything in general. And it's always good to make these corrections uh, just because then you know I will admit that I am wrong if I'm wrong. Uh, recently, we were talking about low uh, low orbit, uh, low Earth orbit satellites, LEOS, low orbit, low Earth orbit. Yeah, low LEO is I think the abbreviation, LEOs, low Earth orbit satellites. And these are satellites that are meant to be uh, used for Wi-Fi and internet signal um, that are part of the new wave, I didn't mean to say that, but the new wave of commercial uh, internet technology. And what the the comment that I made in one of the earlier podcasts was that they are a thousand feet above the ground, which obviously makes no sense. It's a thousand kilometers, duh. And they can be, you know, a few, like hundreds to thousands of kilometers above the, above the earth, which is obviously equating to many, many thousands of feet. So it obviously doesn't make sense for them to be only a thousand feet. So there's a correction there. And then I'm not going to read this entire response because this person, Cap, who left a great comment, uh, proceeds to do five paragraphs then says, in parentheses, I don't want to make this a lengthy post, and then proceeds to do more paragraphs after that. So I, I certainly can't read this whole thing to you. But I will say this. The, the main focus of their response to me was that as technology increases, or as human, as human population increases, technology must also increase to match the demand on the system. And I'll read a small piece. It said, assuming population is small and stagnant, your point about technology would be valid. But given the growth rate and billions of people, uh, more and more technology growth is needed as technology increases the efficiency in our functioning to allow 
to meet their needs and demands. This demand cannot be met by the government because the government is 100 times inefficient in capital allocation in most industries. I can understand the need for some regulation, but we need to we need more and more technology for the foreseeable future for hundreds of years. Look at the Federal Reserve printing so much money recently. Significant percentage of inequality and poverty in America is created because of it. Printing money is the equivalent of stealing efficiency from businesses that has compounded through decades. Um, what he is, he or she, I think Cap is a guy, is talking about is referring to my idea that I, I've talked about a few times on the show, which is that I'm not sure if there is a one-for-one um, comparison to the evolution of uh, human beings' consciousness and the evolution of our technology. I think that there might be actually some competition between our consciousness and the technology in the way that we have uh, currently set everything up. There were paintings uh, and pictures that were drawn of humans, you know, 100 or 200 years ago, and they thought that as we continue to evolve, our brains would just keep getting bigger and bigger, you know, because really that's the only thing that separates, or one of the main things that separates humans from animals is that our brains are just huge. And they thought we would just have these huge brains, which is kind of what aliens look like in some of those pictures, the gray, those grays or the green aliens. But what we found is that our brains are not expanding, so that we just actually externalize our brains, and they're now in phones. So our brain didn't have to get any bigger. We actually stuffed all the information that we didn't feel like holding on to into all these tablets and devices that we now carry around as second and third brains. And you think about that. I mean, think about how much information is on your device that you purposely don't remember because you have this technology to keep it there for you. And I remember even as far back as I believe it was Aristotle, you know, who was saying that uh, something around, along the lines of like the the memory is the ultimate technology of man. And as we develop technology to reduce the need for memory that we lose an essential part of us. And I paraphrase that heavily, but he did make that point. And that's the point I was kind of trying to make. And, and I don't, I think it's more of a philosophical point. I don't believe that we should stop inventing technology or that we should stop evolving our technology. Who am I to say that we shouldn't be doing quantum computing? But I just think that the our EQ has to increase with our IQ. Our EQ is our emotional intelligence. And Human beings are seriously lacking on emotional intelligence. You can just look at everything that's happening in the world, and that's probably where we lack the most. There are a lot of individuals who have very high Q, but as a population, we have low EQ. Even if you look at like a movie example like Avatar, one of the, the distinguishing features of that population and what kind of made it so devastating to watch, even though it was a fictional movie, this happens often, is that you have a population who had a very high EQ because they're like a communal population. You have these natives who care about the land, they care about each other, they care about you know, the things that uh, that their ancestors cared about. And they have a lot of EQ. They have a lot of emotional intelligence. That's what that stands for, emotional intelligence for themselves and the planet and their society. Then you have people who might on the record books have a higher IQ, you know, whether it's more technology, you know, you know, in the case of Avatar, it's, you know, you know, it's crazy space technology. In the case of real life example, it's the pilgrims with guns and horses and stuff and things like that. And they have a high IQ. They might be able to solve a, you know, a math problem in a better or different way, but their EQ is low. And typically, always the high IQ, they always end up killing the, the, the high EQ people. <laughs> they always, it always seems to be like the smart people for, in the short term, demolish the wise people. Because the, the smart people are clever. They're very clever. And they make a lot of shortcuts, which they think are winning. You know? But realistically, for us to, as a population... As a, as a global community, continue to, to win, I think we need more emotional intelligence. I don't see that emotional intelligence improving with our technological advancement. So all this going back to the, the comment that you responded to on, on the um, New Wave Entrepreneur blog, which you can go to newwaveentrepreneur.com and you can respond to any of these things, or you can join the Discord and you can respond to these things. 
the point I was making was more philosophical. I'm not sure if we will be able to slow down technology or we should slow it down to match and to wait for our IQ to catch up. But I do often wonder if we might get we might get so smart that we kill ourselves. And that seems to be where we're headed. And I don't know if Elon is helping or hurting that. It seems like, I know we're just still talking on this, and this is the last time I'm gonna talk about this for a few weeks at least. I just, it seems like, it seems like to me, in the, in the and I watched the recent, there's a documentary with Elon too on Netflix. It seems like, People who are so obsessed with with the life that we could live off the planet, it seems like we've we've given up on Earth a bit. <laughs> you know, they made a whole documentary about uh, I think it's Return to Space and how it's really fantastic what SpaceX has done. I mean, they're more efficient than NASA because well, let's be clear, NASA they're in collaboration with NASA, but they're doing the work that NASA left off and they're doing it well. And um, I just don't want us to. I, I just I just feel like. A lot of people are like, ah, oh, just fuck this planet. Like, we've already fucked it up. The, the pollution is too much to handle. The spending's out of control. Let's, let's just go to Mars. But that's not going to solve anything. It's like, that's why I'm saying we're low, we're low EQ. We don't, we're not getting it. You can't just move to Mars with the same problems. And the only difference you have is, oh, Elon's going to do it better over here. <laughs> like, what, what, to him, what is him creating cars and solar panels and... Even going to the space station have to do with the fact that we're destroying the planet. All of that's very useful, but I feel like that's an add-on. It doesn't have anything to do with our human behavior. It's just, they're just nice to haves. I don't know. I'm cutting it on Elon today. We're done. And if I talk about Elon again for the next three weeks, we're cutting it. That's it. Let's move on to the next bullet. <laughs> I could go on and on about this thing, you know? And I'm not, a, I'm not an Elon hater either. I like Elon. Okay, next bullet. So here's one that's interesting. Now this is uh, this is we're talking about we're talking about sla- slavery. I have two things on my hair. I have, I have uh, Harvard details their ties to slavery as it plans for uh, redress, and I have one that's UCLA grad Jessica Watkins to become the first Black woman on NASA space station. One's a positive, one's a negative. They're both positives. One's a downer, one's an upper. Okay, let me read to you about this article from, or read to you, rather, the bullets from this article in the New York Times. This is very interesting. Now, what we've seen over the past, I don't know, X number of years, you know, five to 10 years, is that a lot of these prestigious organizations are getting in line and they are apologizing or appearing to apologize for connections to slavery. A few years ago, we saw that Georgetown, uh, well, a university in, in D.C., and essentially an Ivy League university in D.C., um, not found but acknowledged the fact that um, there was a large amount of, uh, you know, uh, or it's just not to say a large amount, of, but a significant amount of money that was made from the sale, the possession and sale of slaves by members of the founder, the found, the founders of Georgetown, or other people who lived, or the actual university itself at that time, um, but the university, from what I remember reading the article, um, acknowledged that certain areas of the campus and the school were built directly from proceeds from slavery. And in 2020, that became now unacceptable to remain unacknowledged. So that became something that was addressed, and I believe they started up a you know some sort of fund. In this article from New York Times, it says, Harvard details its ties to slavery and its plans for redress. The university is committing $100 million for an endowed, quote, legacy of slavery fund. Its report carefully avoided treading on direct financial reparations for descendants of enslaved people. So, 
From New York Times, while New England's image has been linked in popular culture to abolitionism, wealthy plantation owners in Harvard were mutually dependent, said a report released uh, by the university on Tuesday. And this is a, first of all, I just want to encourage you guys to um, to read long form news articles if you can, because they're always, they always give a lot more details than you're just going to get on these, you know, these little news bite, click bite sites. Um, but according to New York Times, Experts said that the amount of money Harvard was committing for such project was rare, if not unprecedented for an educational institution. It rivals the $100 million pledged by leaders of the Jesuit Conference of Priests for Racial Reconciliation and to benefit descendants of enslaved people at Georgetown University. Okay, we are just talking to this. $100 million is good. The report calls for spending the money in a multitude of tracks by tracing the modern-day descendants of enslaved people at Harvard— by building memorials and curriculum to honor and expose the past, by creating exchange programs between students and faculty members at Harvard and those at historically black colleges and universities, and by collaborating with tribal colleges, and by forging partnerships to improve schools in the American South and West Indies, where plantation owners and Boston Brahmins made their intertwined fortunes on the backs of the enslaved. Oh, this is a touchy one. Um, okay, how do I feel about this? So, any acknowledgement of this history is awesome and needed. I think that we've just reached the point recently where the civil rights movement itself, and this is civil rights movement is an ongoing thing that's been in progress for, you know, decades now, since the 60s, certainly, and before, and, and still going. The civil rights movement, at least for the first 40 years of it, 30, let's say 30 years, was first of all, just a fight for acknowledgement. A lot of the the things that were happening weren't even being acknowledged as parts of systemic and endemic racism that are stemming from, from you know, the historical enslavement of, a, of the black population. But what I found was so interesting is that there are a lot of similarities in culture where enslaved or just, you know, downtrodden population will come back from a war, for instance, or from some many decades, many years long engagement. And the people who were in maybe the 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 upper not upper class but the dominant class the majority class sometimes won't even understand or acknowledge what has happened so for instance I was reading with my new wave protocol uh, friends my, my my clients from that group recently we had a um, a meetup and we were reviewing the book called uh, oh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl and this is one of the best books that you're ever going to read it's one of the best books that a human being has ever written because it is the epitome of of conscious, I don't know, conscious recollection. This man uh, was a Holocaust survivor at multiple camps, including uh, Auschwitz, I believe. And he details uh, in extreme, uh, extreme illustration, the day-to-day -day living and the day-to-day -day experience of his time as a prisoner at these multiple camps and not only what it felt like, but everything he saw in his mental state and his spiritual state and his emotional state. And of course, uh, uh, Victor Frankl was a, um, he was a clinical psychiatrist. So he had medical training. So he could actually diagnose himself objectively as he was going through this, uh, this tremendously painful experience that no human should be able to, should be able to, should be able to handle really. And what he found was that the humans can handle anything. But what was really surprising to me was he talked about the aftermath of coming home from the Holocaust and, you know, some of the the things that he expected to happen when he came back did not happen. Um, one of the main things was that 
as many Jews were returning from these camps, these conditions, uh, they'd been liberated from the camps or they're coming out of ghettos. There are a lot of different um, situations that were really bad for, um, the, from, for the population. Oftentimes, the Germans, the white Aryan Germans, the people who are part of the majority class, those who maybe weren't part of the, the, the Nazi party, they weren't necessarily actively participating in the Nazi party, but they weren't, um, they weren't really uh, informed or they weren't paying a lot of attention to what was happening to those around them or, or others who, who weren't them. People would say, oh, I didn't even know that something had happened. What do you mean you guys came back from an internment? What, what's Auschwitz? Like, there was a general disbelief or almost like a nonchalance of, oh, you guys are back now, or, oh, I didn't even know that something had happened. Now, imagine the the emotional intensity of someone who'd gone for, you know, three to five years, you know, or one to four years in one of these uh, hellish, disgusting, uh, grotesque, terrifying, uh, you know, bone-chilling, uh, soul-curdling camps where they had lost everything, literally, but their physical body, and sometimes that, and where they had lost most of their family oftentimes, where their family and friends and peers have been turned to ash, literally. They go back to their homes, and their homes are gone. Or sometimes there's even new families living in their homes who <laughs> they don't know, and they can't get their stuff back. I mean, these are the things that happen to survivors of the Holocaust. And uh, Frankel talks about the indignance of that he felt when he'd come back, when he'd finally come back from the situation, he wanted to tell people and express them and cry with them. And they almost, uh, you know, didn't even realize that he'd been gone or that, that anything had happened to the Jews or that anything had bad had happened at all. That blew my mind. And I think that that's what's kind of happened in a similar way uh, with, with African-Americans in, in the U.S. And it's a different situation, but there's still, it's like a much longer war, or it had been. And I think a lot of people took decades to wake up to the fact that, oh, yeah, like, slavery was really bad. And obviously, um, at, that, at the time of the slave trade, all the way from the 1600s through the 1800s, there were obviously individuals in those time periods who knew, yo, this is wrong, obviously. Um, but I think that in general, it's taken over a hundred years and then within the civil rights movement, decades for people to get, oh, this is not only uh, wrong, but it's affected this population of people in a way that we can't just repair by saying, sorry. And first of all, there has to be acknowledgement of wrong is done before you say sorry. And then, you know, when you say sorry, it's like, well, how, how do you do it? So these colleges are acknowledging their role in slavery, in the slave trade. And I think that is a great thing. From the perspective of a black man, I feel that, I mean, straight up, like there definitely should be reparations. And just because you look at where where, where money is allocated and how it's not useful for most, of the re for most of the ways that it is allocated, but yet the areas where it actually could be at least a psychological benefit, it's not given. So for instance, we look at the fact that all this money was given out during COVID. We look at all the money that's spent on the war machine. We look at all the money that's sent overseas to other countries that aren't us, like look at all the money that's gone to Ukraine just to arm those countries up and all the money that we send overseas to our, quote, allies. But then we have allies at home. These are our citizens, and we're not paying them back when we basically did the same to them, you know, or when, when, we, when we were responsible for, their, uh, for, for damage to them. And so I think that 
even if it, the thing is too, there's no way to calculate. There's no way to calculate the the damage done by something as systemic as an endemic as racism. Well, there is a way to calculate it actually, but it's it's in the trillions of dollars. And I read recently read an article in Bloomberg uh, where it was talking about this concept of baby bonds. And baby bonds are essentially uh, financial tools, financial instruments, bonds essentially that keep place with inflation keep pace with inflation that every citizen would be entitled to um, in, you know, at the very beginning of their life, uh, they would get one automatically for being a citizen and it would mature. And by the time you're 18, when you could finally legally access it, it would be something between somewhere between 50 and a hundred thousand uh, dollars, keeping pace with inflation guaranteed to you just for being a citizen. And the math showed that this would really help to uh, decrease the wealth gap, uh, which Again, if you're, if you're listening to this, I know we're talking about reparations and what Harvard's doing and Georgetown's doing. You need to understand, if you're listening to this and you are a just you know a normal American and you're a normal American white person who's never really thought about this, then it, it's not a problem, but it's just something that you need to be aware of. A lot of families who who are a lot of black families, if you're if they might have one or two generations out of poverty, if not directly out of poverty. And hey, that's the same in white families as well, especially when you're looking at the Rust Belt. Uh, but what we're talking about really is the the proportion, the percentage. When you're looking at majority population and there's uh, a smaller percentage of people who are in poverty and uh, uh, most people have some sort of like generational security built up or many of them, many people do, then it creates this disparity that isn't, that isn't closed just by one person getting a good job. It takes many decades and um, and even I was thinking like just about my upbringing and my upbringing was very much both, you know, being both black and both white and looking at how those two family lines had different experiences in the same time period. So for instance, uh, on my, my mom's side, which is the white side, I think about my my great grandfather and his side of the family who were World War II veterans. And he was a World War II veteran, so was his wife. Well, she's still alive. He just recently passed last year. And when he uh, left the war, when he when he was out of the war in, in you know, the early 50s, you know, I guess 50, 50, 51, I guess well, Korea was like 50, but I don't know, 48 or 49, something like that. Within a few years, he bought a bunch of property in Florida. That side of my family set up a, um, like a whole wing of, they had a house in Florida, then they had multiple different properties and they started to create wealth. And he was given access to different GI programs. And like, he was just, he got out of the war and he immediately went to college and got a law degree. And he, I mean, he started to build his wealth and that was at a young age. You know, he Let's see, he was born in 1921. The war was in, you know, he was in and out between 45 and 48, something like that. So he was probably, you know, he was between 20 and 20, 20 and 25, something like that. And so he was able to start creating wealth. And that is something that I didn't even realize until I got older is not an equal opportunity. Because if you look at the way that real estate practices were set up and are still even set up in the in the US today, there's things called redlining where certain types of populations just can't get into certain communities. Uh, where banks don't give loans to um, to minority populations, and this isn't like this isn't like de facto law, which means oh, it's just by practice but not in law. Up until not too long ago, you know, within a few decades, which in the game of wealth is not long, um, there were laws and charters written into different um, areas of the U.S. where they said you legally cannot rent these or sell this property to a black person because they thought people who created these properties and parcel of this land thought it would bring the value of the property down. 
So that's what I mean when I talk about generational wealth. It's not like, oh, you know, these blacks just didn't get jobs, so they didn't get a lot of money, you know, as easily. Like, there was systematic oppression. That's just one example. These universities are giving some credence to that. They're giving some acknowledgement, and I appreciate it. When it comes to reparations from the government themselves, I think that there's never going to be enough money to truly, uh, to truly account for that damage. I think baby bonds are a good idea. But what I, what I really think is, is being overlooked here, and it goes back to the first point. It's about EQ. Do you guys realize that if the government did something just basic for them, like the government could, could cut off $10,000 checks to, well, how many people are, how many black people are in America? There's like 40 million people, 40 million black people. Well, no one will vote, no one would ever vote for this. But they could conceivably cut off $10,000 checks and say, hey, listen, they could literally do this and say, hey, listen, you or your ancestors, it looks like according to our records, someone from your family lineage was associated with some shit that we did. And we just want to let you know, we acknowledge it. This isn't going to be enough. It never will. But we acknowledge it. Love Joe Biden. And that, people would probably still complain. They would say, this isn't enough. Nah, 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 nah. But a lot of people would say, you know what? Thank you. One, because we already saw how much money we were able to give away from in, in the pandemic. Because guess what, bitch? We're making the money. Now, it's not necessarily doing well for us. It's a pretty bad strategy. But people say, oh, we don't have the money. It doesn't make sense. We're creating money. When we didn't have the money during COVID, they just printed trillions more. It, there is no real budget. That's why there's no uh, there's no um, ceiling with with uh, with the Federal Reserve. That's why we print more. That's why there's no link to gold anymore. There's no gold standard. There's no ceiling for how much we can print. So the government could have easily, and I'm sure they have at some points, looked what reparations would cost, done the numbers, and said, nah, we don't want to do that. But then other things, they do the calculations and say, sure, we'll overextend ourselves. I mean, they're putting trillions of dollars into the Build Back Better program, which is the infrastructure program. So anyway, these are just examples of, oh, the EQ thing. That would make people emotionally feel good. Even though it wouldn't take care of the material damage, it would make people feel emotionally good. And humans are emotional creatures. Yes, we operate logically, but we also have so many of the decisions that we make go below the surface and operate emotionally. And I think that when people do things and make emotional gestures, it can sometimes circumvent that logical gesture because emotions are more powerful than logic in most cases. So I think that there'd be a, a positive sentiment towards the, towards the government and towards, it, I think there'd be a positive sentiment just towards the world if black people got reparations. It won't happen, but it's not because it can't happen. I appreciate the universities doing it. You know, that's the best they can do. On the other hand, looking at it from just the perspective of the the white man's perspective in my own uh, my own white man's mind, I think to myself, well, you know, there's nothing I can do about it at this point. It's water under the bridge, you know, and we kind of just, we have to move on. But it is interesting to see the acknowledgement happening. And um, and yeah, I, I wonder I wonder where that's going to lead us to, to in the future. We see they're taking down monuments. We see they're making all these changes in the future. Uh, or, or, or to the to the um, the present of how we're representing race relations and the different reminders of the things that have happened in the past. And I just wonder, like, is this all surface level? Will it really make a difference when it comes down to how people feel? Um, because people haven't felt heard, and that's been, I think, the main thing that the BLM protests in 2020 were trying to communicate. We're not feeling heard. And if you have, you know, going all the way back now, if you have something like George Floyd, or someone's getting strangled, and then there's most people, it seemed like, were pretty outraged by that. But the fact that there were many who were also like, well, and then they had any excuse. He shouldn't have had a criminal record, or he shouldn't have had cigarettes, or he shouldn't have whatever. There's no excuse for it. And and the, the pain that people feel from just watching that brings up ancestral trauma, brings up PTSD. 
I don't, I'm going way out here, but we've talked about this in a few episodes now. There's something called perinatal uh, experiences, which talk about the experiences pre and during birth. So if you're having, you know, a traumatic birth, uh, or you're having some sort of like, you can squeeze out the birth canal in a weird way. You come out at a weird angle. Sometimes you get strangled. Or even for me, you know, I was born premature. I had a collapsed lung. Those types of um, circumstances in early life before conscious memory forms still have a material impact on our psyche and on our neural connections. Because if you think about it, your mother, I know we're going way out for our adrenal races, but your, your mother is the literal extension of your neural network. She's the physical extension of your nerves in the real world. Well, you're an extension of her. It's the same Russian doll type thing here. But you can have trauma that's stored in your body from an early birth experience that you wouldn't remember that created a scary traumatic event. And you can also have trauma that's passed to you through the mother of based on things you didn't experience. Now, we know this is in a very real way because obviously mothers can pass uh, chemical addictions through the blood-brain barrier to the infants. We also know that um, I've seen recently uh, some research that shows that um, mothers can even transmit, transmit certain types of cancer to the baby through uh, through the placenta and other different uh, blood, you know, blood trans, trans uh, you know, interaction. And um, so it just follows to me that whatever is stored within the mom, whether it's depression, whether it's PTSD, the effects of that will also be stored to the baby by the baby unconsciously. And if you look at actually birth rate statistics, more than any other group of people, black women die in childbirth in hospitals. And more than any other group of people, they report feeling the most unsafe and unwelcome because there's a lot of uh, preconceived notions by uh, medical staff. There's a lot of medical racism around, oh, well, uh, black women don't feel pain the same way or as much, or they're not, they don't understand their own body. They don't know what's actually happening. And um, I have a lot of stories like this, but it all goes back to um, just the idea that we're, we're, going, we're living experiences in our own bodies. And we're, we have these lived experiences of our lives and the things that we go through in our lives. And a lot of times, unless we take the time to actively think about what it might be like to be in someone else's shoes, then we're never going to take the time to have that EQ. We've been going through different podcasts now talking about EQ and have that emotional intelligence with people. And um, and that's what we were kind of lacking for so long. And I, it seems like it's starting to form now. And I think that what's happening at these universities is at least the external marker of that EQ. I don't know how the dean of these schools feel. Often, I don't know, like when, when big institutions make these anti-racism movements, you know, or these anti- you know, these anti-defamation um, things or, or like things that are that are like pro-LGBTQ, pro-anything, when we're trying to like denounce any type of segregation or racism or exclusionism, I often don't know whether the executives that are making decisions, these decisions actually care or if they're just making them to create social goodwill and to virtue signal. And then it doesn't actually really matter to me because like, for instance, if Harvard wants to give a bunch of money to black families and their students or to create funds for people and actually do it, then I don't care whether the dean actually feels like this is an important thing or they're just doing it to save face because the net result is people getting access. That's what I really care about. But I often do wonder how many of these instances are people just like, you know what, fuck these people, but I guess we should do it because we are Harvard and we're setting an example. And like how many people who are giving these opportunities are still actually racist, but they're doing it for political reasons. Uh, I think about that sometimes too. And that's just something that I, you know, I can't always, I can't always get away from. Uh, but 
that's the update on these, uh, these universities doing these interesting things. Hey there. Did you know that this isn't a podcast you're listening to? Okay, let me be more clear. This isn't just a podcast you're listening to. See, by listening to this show, you're actually part of the New Wave community. And because of that, I really want to meet you, IRL, in real life. Wouldn't it be nice to spend some time in a beautiful location, maybe a mansion by the sea with a chef-catered dinner, knowledgeable friends who really want to help you, a cello playing in the background, and, you know, an overall great ambiance? Doesn't that sound gorgeous? Well, we just created that at a recent New Wave dinner in LA, and I want you to be part of the next one. See, these dinner experiences are for entrepreneurs, career climbers, and creatives who want to build friendships with each other in real time, in real life, not just spending time chatting on the internet. We want to actually feel each other's presence, and we spend time together uh, bringing our business problems, bringing our half-baked ideas, bringing our creative questions. Then over a, a wonderfully catered meal, we work together as a group to help, help each other untie these knots and dial in our focus. And afterwards, we go and relax. We take a dip in a pool. I always get a place with a pool or a jacuzzi, have some drinks. We do a little bit of partying. And you will leave this experience with connections and brand new ideas and budding relationships. And you might even find your next co-founder or your next investor sitting right next to you. But more importantly, you are going to leave with a jumping off point, some momentum to go into this next phase of your life, this next chapter, uh, some new ideas that you didn't have before, something that's been enhanced that you know you have confidence in. Now you're going to build that inner momentum. And that's what's so important. And of course, when you're there, I'm also going to bless you with some new wave merch. If you've been looking at my photos, I'm constantly making new merch and new gear just to show the community that, you know, we got something special going here. So make sure you check out the next new wave dinner experience. Now we're doing these all over the country and potentially all over the world. We did our first one in LA. We're going to be doing them in Austin, New York, Miami, and a few other cities. Plus most likely we're going to hit the UK or Europe. So make sure you go to newwaveentrepreneur.com to check out all the dates. We'll have them all listed there. And of course, you can uh, you can sign up. There's going to be about 10 to 12 people per location. So this isn't a massive um, conference. This is a 10 to 12 person event. And that means that it's purposely designed for you to meet people, to engage with them, and to have a whole hell of a lot of fun. So make sure you check out newwaveentrepreneur.com to get all the dates and locations for the next one. I, I believe... Depending on when you're listening to this, the next one is in Austin this summer, and it'll be all over the country. So sign up, and now let's get to the episode. Okay, let's move on to the next news bit. I'll pair this up with a very quick bite about UCLA grad Jessica Watkins, who is going to become the first black woman on a NASA space station crew, which is really, really cool. And this is a rookie. She she received her doctorate degree in geology, and she's set to make aerospace history tomorrow. Uh, which is actually, well, I'm reading this article uh, and it's going to happen on, let's see, the 20, so it's going to happen going to happen on Thursday. So if you read, if you're listening to this on Friday, then it will happen just the day before. Uh, so she's set to make her, her debut and she's going to launch from Cape Canaveral. She's going to be the first uh, black woman who, uh, who is going to be aboard, flying aboard the space, the NASA space station crew, which is pretty awesome. And what I'm reading here is that uh, this is a SpaceX launch. So it's scheduled to launch from Cape Canaveral. And uh, she's part, Watkins is part of three other members of the Crew 4, the fourth operational crew launched by SpaceX to the station under contract with NASA. And they're going to be flying aboard a new Crew Dragon spacecraft dub, dubbed Freedom. So I am not going to mention the founder of SpaceX, even though this directly <laughs> mentioned them. I'm trying not to go back into this, but I do think it's cool that SpaceX and NASA are doing 
uh, collaborative work together. It just shows that that we can get further when we're working corporate and, and government together. Let's move to the next news bite. Ooh, this is a good one. This is right from the Wall Street Journal. Headline here is Pentagon Taps Lyft's Machine Learning Chief. Craig Martell was named as the Def Department of Defense's first chief digital and artificial intelligence officer. According to WSJ, uh, let's see, the Defense Department has named a Silicon Valley veteran to fast-track the development of artificial intelligence capabilities to be used by U.S. forces from the Pentagon to the battlefield agency said. Craig Martell, who heads machine learning at San Francisco-based ride-hailing company Lyft on Monday, was named as the military's first chief digital and artificial intelligence officer, charged with accelerating the adoption of data, analytics, and digital applications, the agency said. Wow. Deputy Secretary of Defense uh, Kathleen Hicks in a statement said that the move is aimed at increasing the speed at which the military develops advanced AI, data analytics, and machine learning technology. Quote, advances in AI and machine learning are critical to delivering the capabilities we need to address key challenges both today and into the future. <laughs> I love I love how political and economic and military speak is always so bland and devoid of the actual meaning. When someone says advances in AI and machine learning are critical to delivering the capabilities we need to address key challenges both today and in the future, what this person means is that AI and machine learning are going to allow us to kill a lot of people and blow them up from very far away. <laughs> That's the only... So that's the only thing that the Department of Defense does. We realize this, right? Or if there's a pie chart, the proportion... And when we say national defense, <laughs> how much of the defense that we're doing is offense? That's a good... They should, they should call it Department of Offense. Actually, that would be a great little, little truthism to change. It's the Department of Defense. Because really what we're doing is we're proactively defending ourselves by going into other countries and defending them. We're proactively defending ourselves by going to other countries and playing offense, or we're giving other countries weapons to play offense against their adversaries. Uh, and this technology, so what I think is so interesting with, with the merge of, of Silicon Valley and the government and Silicon Valley and Washington is that, one, this has been happening for years. And oftentimes, what we don't realize is that our tax money goes to the government, obviously, but then the government pays private companies or consultants to develop technology that is then resold to us at exorbitant markups. So for instance, an old example would be like, you know, GPS was an old, uh, was an old Navy project, right? As far as I understand, it was something that was developed uh, partially with funding from the Navy, which is funding from tax dollars. And then that technology was then exported to consumer goods, which we then pay for. So it would be like if you spent your money to help someone develop a prototype um, and you seed funded that prototype, and then when it was on sale, the company sold it back to you at 10 to 100 times the price that you paid, and you're the one that paid for the development. So that's essentially what we're doing with our government stuff. We pay for the technology that the government develops, and oftentimes the government and the private companies work in collaboration and then the private companies will then sell that stuff back to us while the government then retains either patent or they retain technology or they, um, they, they create more deals, more money with those private companies, but they use our money as seed funding. A place where this recently showed up was in uh, the COVID, uh, COVID drug creations. And, you know, we saw that, for instance, um, the, the government is... Uh, funneling money from people 
to pay for vaccines. And then the vaccine money goes to the, the pharma companies. The pharma companies then make the money or make the vac- vaccines with the money that we are paying the government. And then they mark up the cost of those vaccines or, or pills. So for instance, there's a, a new COVID pill that's coming out by Merck, I believe. And the retail price of that, which we'd have to pay, is something like 17 times the cost. Now, of course, people always always get me on stats. They're now leaving comments. It's not kill. It's not feet. It's kilometers. It's not. Uh, it's not seven. It's 17. So I don't know which one it is. But it's it's an exorbitant markup. It's like 10x plus. And of course, now wh- where we don't see this is you. Okay, so you pay the government. The government pays Merck. So you've already paid the government once, and they've used your money to pay Merck. Then Merck takes that. They make the drug. And then they sell the drug back to you, but you get it with your insurance company. So your insurance company might pay for it, but then you pay more for your insurance because the insurance company has to pay more for that drug. So it's so it's going back, it's all going back to the private companies and to the government, but you're paying for the funding at all the <laughs> at all the rounds of it. And then you're paying for the funding to create the drug. And then once it's distributed using your research dollars, then you're paying seven, 10, whatever X more just to access that drug. Um, and so that's what's happening. And this happens a lot with, with military stuff too. So it's the same thing. So you think about, for instance, with this guy who's coming from Lyft. First of all, it just shows the direct, the direct transfer of civilian technology to weaponized technology. If you're looking at this guy who was the head of AI at Lyft, the brain that he's used for X amount of years to get you to your destination is now going to be used to kill people. That's it. There's nothing else to say. All the information he's used, and you see how they how they market these things. Hey guys, Uber, it's the Uber lifestyle, it's Lyft. We're all just riding around with rideshare. It's a community. There's all this technology. We're just a community of people doing stuff, and it's like a great company. We're not even profitable. You know, we're just here for the people. It's like, you know, it's whatever. But it's like the data is the thing. It was never about even profitability to a certain extent because these companies can go on indefinitely without profit because what happens is VCs keep pouring money back into the company, so they never have to actually make money on the front end. All of their money is made, I mean, look, not all of their money, but much of the, the money is made on the back end. And not even the money, but the value in these companies is in the back end because all of that data that they have is priceless. It's not just the user data of like where people are going and what their preferences are and when they like to ride. That's all that important data. It's also the the data of how machines interact, how machines learn, how algorithms behave in certain situations. That's all machine learning is is something that can only happen when you have, you know, many millions of computers all working so that you can figure out what the algorithm does. And that's something that a big company like Uber or Lyft can do because they have those millions and millions and billions of data points. And that's what's valuable to the government. So while as Lyft might not have made a profit on the front end with some of their rides, now you have you can see how valuable uh, that that data is, or the or or the insights from that data. Another thing too to remember about government and and corporate crossover is that a lot of times these government officials will join corporate and then they'll just keep working inside the government, but in an unofficial capacity. So you have people like um, oh gosh, what's his name? I'm going to look for chief one of the one of the new heads. Of, we just talked about him recently. On, on the podcast, I think he was on one of these Friday wrap ups. He's the new uh, like head of communication or the one of the strategic uh, directors at Facebook, and he is a former minister from the UK Parliament. So he's a direct insider in the UK government, 
And part of the reason why they get, uh, why, why corporate people get governments or why, or government people get corporate, because it goes both ways. In this instance, the Pentagon is taken from corporate. In some elements, in some instances, it, it's corporate taking from the government. In the, in the instance of, of the Facebook, uh, you know, the, the Facebook uh, guy, I forget his name now, sounds so, sounds so bad, but he's coming from the UK government. And so what does he know? He knows policymakers, he knows law loopholes, he has relationships. He also has a more polished appearance that isn't so much about the tech and more about, I mean, he just knows how to do political doublespeak. And a lot of times they stay embedded. It's like if you leave your job of 20 years to go work somewhere else, do you lose all your connections overnight? No. Can you still call your friend who works at the place you used to work at and get a job? Mate, probably. Can you still, you know, push some things, things through, especially if you had clout? Probably. So it's the same thing on the other side with this guy who's tapped by the Pentagon from Lyft. He is going to have all his connections in Silicon Valley. He can bring some of his friends with him, I'm sure. They're going to be able to extract a lot of information. And these two play together in the same arena. A lot of times the, the government is really playing up to um, is really playing up to corporate because they can get a lot of information from corporate. They can get a lot of technology and tools. And a lot of times corporate is playing up to the government because they can get a lot of money from the government, which is why they have, um, you know, they have these special lobbying. And, you know, these companies will set aside hundreds of millions of dollars per year just to like donate to different quote funds, to donate to candidates, to, do, to donate to different causes that are all in line with what some of these politicians and different insiders are aligned with. So this is all one game. And it's also, remember, again, we're again talking about this in a more holistic reason. It's the reason why there's this conversation where, behind whether uh, members of Congress should be able to participate openly in the stock markets. It's because a lot of these members of Congress are regulating the industries or the companies that they are then investing in. And it doesn't make sense for them to be able to do that because they're making the laws. And it's literally the definition of insider trading. It's literally the definition. You can't you can't look at it any other way. A lot of times they'll either know what's happening and be able to make moves first or they'll make the laws and then do it in advance. And we've caught dozens and dozens of these politicians red-handed with millions and millions of money moved at opportune times. Nancy Pelosi comes to mind, which by the way, I looked her up. I didn't know she was 82 the other day. Holy crap. And honestly, she looks good for 82. You know, I really can't say much. She's moving around. She's sprightly. She seems like she's got a, a you know, boss bitch attitude. Like I'm, I'm into it, you know, but um, she's a hot 82 year old, but Still, it's not right what she's doing. Um, but I wanted to bring this article to your attention because it just because <laughs> because because it, it it just shows the the link between corporate and government and how they're they really can't regulate each other effectively and how there's so much crossover. Uh, and I wanted you to know that because it it and this is why you know I, I look at uh, Hegel should not be should not be named buying Twitter. And I think okay, what's the correlation going to be there? But we'll talk about it later. So. That is your news update from, from Lyft with machine learning and the Pentagon. Okay, let's see if we have one more interesting piece to close out today. Okay, we're gonna close this one out with a really, really fun one. Just kidding. Beijing races to contain, quote, urgent and grim COVID outbreak as Shanghai lockdown continues. This is coming from CNN, and I've seen some pretty pretty disturbing videos from coming from China. From uh, from Hong Kong here, Beijing is racing to track a COVID-19 outbreak that may have been spreading in the capital for a week. City authorities said over the weekend, raising the prospect more stringent restrictions could soon be implemented with, in line with other Chinese cities. Uh, Chaoyang, one of the city's largest districts, announced Sunday that it would launch 
Three rounds of mass testing for those who work and live in the district, some 3.5 million residents, according to the latest census. The announcement came after 11 cases were detected in a 24-hour period, sparking panic uh, buying in the district, panic buying in the district, which includes the business center and a number of foreign embassies. As residents rushed to stock up on basic goods uh, in case of lockdown, despite authorities' assurances that there were ample supplies. So, um, what is interesting to me, or a couple of the notes here, is that. Uh, the city, uh, so so Beijing reported more than 19,000 new cases and 51 deaths on Sunday, and which is a pretty decent ratio, 19,000 new cases to 51 deaths. I'm not sure what strain of COVID this is. Um, and what I have seen from a few different video sources is that I believe people in, it was either, I don't think it was Hong Kong, because Hong Kong is not officially part of the, the Ch- China's sphere, according to who you ask. But I believe this is in Beijing, where I saw uh, residential towers with um, the sound on, and you heard a slow, uh, low wail at first, kind of like a mm, like a moaning, and then over the next thirty to ninety seconds, multiple towers with what looked like hundreds of people in them exploded with this sobbing, wailing, moaning sound. And you heard this ghastly, ghostly moan coming from these uh, these silver reflective towers somewhere in Beijing as the lockdowns uh, took effect, and that was something I saw on a on a um, on a news site. And I have to actually look back and see if it was real. I believe that it was. I mean, because I heard a lot of steady sounds. I believe it was just in response to all the lockdowns, a lot of public protests, a lot of really just negative, negative feelings from watching those videos. And I often wonder whether, I mean, I think I probably know the answer, how much of it is because of the actual uh, disease itself and how much of it is because of the control factor. I think we know. I think control is the number one goal, especially in a, you know, in a regime uh, like that in China. Not that America doesn't have its own regime, it's just a different one. And I think that show of force and show of control is such a huge part of their power play that they'll do that even when the the, uh, when when the the needs don't call for it, and so I think that's part of what's happening here. It makes me sad, but it also just makes me stay woke because if it's still happening over there, it can come back over here. And remember, you know, when it started off in you know in in March of 2020, people didn't think much, but it can make ripples over. And I think that's something we've seen too with globalization. A lot of people felt relatively safe in America. You look at even what happened in our most major wars, we were protected mostly by geography. Yeah, sure, they came over in Pearl Harbor, they hit. Uh, Hawaii, but Hawaii is not close to the continental U.S. Uh, people don't really make their way over to the U.S., knock on wood, uh, mostly just because it's so far geographically and there's so much space uh, that we can see them coming from a mile away. But that doesn't mean that viruses can't pass. And that's something that we, I think, took for granted, that we have this like safe little island of Canada and Mexico below us and we're in the center. But you don't need to be a warhead to uh, make your way over the ocean. You can be an idea or you can be a virus. And um, and that certainly has been happening. Not only the virus itself, but the fear that comes with it. Both have made their way uh, and they still exist. Um, so we're keeping a tab on those. All right, so much love, guys. That's all I got for you today. Uh, you know, next time I'm gonna come with some some happy stuff, you know, but I, I like to kind of dive into the other stuff uh, as well. I think it's important to stay upbeat and to stay focused. And, you know, that's why we have power packs and that's why we have all these like really cool one-off episodes where I'm just doing one-on-one talks. Tomorrow 
is episode 100. That will be our Saturday Q&A. And we have some really good questions specifically around how to create incredible experiences for your clients and meetings that will knock it out of the park and that you will lead the way with. You'll become the trusted advisor to your clients and those that you work with and care about. So make sure you tune into that and make sure that you are checking in with us uh, whenever we drop an episode on Spotify or iTunes, you leave a comment and a review. Five stars really helps us to get great guests and making sure that you are checking in at newwaveentrepreneur.com for everything that we're dropping, including the new Power Pack, uh, Power Pack's mixtape series, which starts with volume one coming out soon. And that's all about success with business and money. That is a great opportunity for you to look deeply inside yourself, offer yourself some introspection and learn the crucial questions you need to be asking to move forward in your business and life just a little bit faster. If you go to newwaveentrepreneur.com and download that power pack volume one, you'll be able to get all my notes and some bonuses with it as well, all for free, all because I love you. The water is warm. The tide is rising, my friends. Let's hurry up and jump on in, surf this new wave. Daniel 